This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have discussed an awful lot of things over the past year. It's been a year where discussion has been one of the only things that becomes completely COVID safe. Talk to somebody over FaceTime, talk to somebody on the phone, talk to somebody in some sort of other chat on the radio. Those are pandemic-safe and pandemic-friendly activities. And a lot of the conversation has centered around making our world better. We've had some very important conversations. And we're hopefully about to have one of those right now. Because we want to talk about microaggression. Best example is your uncle. Your uncle who is in his 80s and he says stuff that isn't appropriate, but you just say, yeah, but that's that's just our uncle. He's in his 80s. That stuff winds up falling into a category that we can call microaggressions, where they're little things, but they help to continue stuff that should long ago have been stopped, whether it is racist, sexist, or otherwise. Yet it keeps going. We're lucky enough to have with us right now Dr. Kevin Nadal, author, activist, comedian, and a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Dr. Nadal, it is Monday, and we're moving into another week. How's today going for you? It's going as well as can be, uh, but I know we have a lot of hard things to talk about. Looking forward to sharing some thoughts. Well, one of the things that you have talked a lot about is microaggression, and that's that's something that I don't think as much as we've had a lot of buzzwords come our way or a lot of things that maybe we didn't have defined on a more regular basis in the last year, that that's maybe not one that has stood out that much. How do we define microaggression? Sure. Yeah, microaggressions uh, is a term that basically captures all of the more subtle forms of discrimination and bias that people's historically marginalized groups experience. Um, and so when we think about discrimination, uh, racism, and other forms of oppression, we oftentimes think about things that are overt, things like hate violence and the incident that happened last week, uh, things like the increase in hate violence towards Asian Americans, things like police brutality, targeting black people. Um, but microaggressions really uh, capture just like some of the more subtle things that people encounter, the ways that people might be uh, followed around in stores, um, the ways in which uh, people who are immigrants or come from immigrant backgrounds may be presumed to be perpetual foreigners or uh, maybe complimented on their English or any number of things um, that convey some sort of bias towards them. So these things exist and have existed for a long, long time. What do we do about this? Can we identify and, and make change, or where do we take this? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that people need to recognize is that there are so many ways that oppression manifests in our lives. So there are some of those overt things I talked about. Uh, there are systemic problems, things like legislation that either targets or excludes people from certain groups from doing certain things. Um, and, and then there are microaggressions, some of the more everyday things that happen between people. So I think what folks need to uh, perhaps think about more are what are some of the ways that we can tackle all of those things. 
um, whether it means contacting our legislators and other policymakers to change uh, the uh, policies on system levels, um, or just to reflect upon some of the behaviors that we engage in, some of the jokes that people might make, some of the comments that uh, people verbalize that are oftentimes very hurtful or offensive, um, and then the ways that people are oftentimes complicit to those things, um, meaning that uh, we just kind of let those things go or laugh um, or um, not confront people if they were to do or say something um, that conveys some sort of bias. You have painted a perfect picture. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Nadal, who is a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, also author, activist, comedian. You talk about little little jokes, little comments, and a lot of times mm-hmm. if they make somebody feel uncomfortable, what do we do? <laughs> you kind of got to maybe laugh right. and, and hope it all goes away really quickly. What is the right way to handle a situation like that so that it has maybe more impact than just kind of passing by? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, one thing that people struggle with a lot is um, that they're put in these situations, they don't know what to do, maybe it takes even a while for it to register, um, and so by the time they think that they should do something, they think, oh, it's too late, this happened five minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, um, I don't know if I should say something. Um, and so I think one thing that people can do is just to be prepared, to already be aware of what you think you should do in certain situations um, in which people make comments, make jokes. Um, make outlandish uh, stereotypes um, and no one says anything about them. Um, and so just to think, I don't want to be that person who just stands by because I know that it might contribute uh, to the further oppression of, of people, which may in fact lead to, you know, some of the hate violence that we've seen. Um, and so um, one thing that I do is I think about um, what are some of the quick rebuttals that I can make in certain situations. Um, if someone makes some sort of comment that feels uh, off-putting, outlandish, or even just really subtle, where you're not sure like what it was that they said, and sometimes we just let those things go, um, I might just say, what do you mean by that? Or I might say, can you clarify that? Um, or I didn't, I didn't hear, hear you. What did you say? Um, and just by doing that simple act, um, a couple things happen. One is that um, it allows you to, to buy some time. Um, because you kind of stop the moment as opposed to oftentimes when you don't do anything, the moment passes and then, you know, so much time passes, you might not do anything at all. Um, but it, it gets a person to just kind of stop and reflect upon what it was that they said. Um, hopefully the person might be able to reflect and say, oh, yeah, I don't really know why I said that. Or, oh, that does sound kind of weird. Why did I say that? Um, and in that moment, you know, there might be an apology, there might be a recognition of that bias, um, which hopefully will lead to more learning and conversation and dialogue and that sort of thing. Um, but even if the person double downs and says, like, you know, what do you mean? Um, or what, what was wrong with what I said? Or if they repeat it, you know, without any hesitation, then that's at least now you're a little bit more prepared to say, you know, when you said that, um, I, I felt that was really hurtful or, or off-putting. Um, that really hurts me. Um, you know, I have a lot of people in my family that are gay or I have a lot of people in my life who are Muslim or whatever it might be um, to convey that saying something like that just isn't okay. Um, and so, you know, starting off by clarifying, stopping them in that moment, 
um, can be something that's really helpful. Um, I know that for some folks, you know, they might even use humor as a way of addressing microaggressions, especially if it's a, if it's a microaggression um, that you experience so much in your life. You know, so like for example, a lot of times um, people of Asian descent in North America, if you um, hear something like "Where are you from?", um, we already kind of know where, where that's going to go. That they're going to say, "We're going to say where we're from. We're from Toronto and from New York." Um, and then the person's going to say, "Well, where are you really from?" Um, suggesting that they're not really from those places, even if you may have been born and raised here. Um, and you know, with that, you might just say, "Like, I'm from Toronto." But if you want to know what my ethnicity is, you should just ask me that directly. Um, I might say, if someone says, "Where are you from?" and I say New York, and they say, "Where are you really from?" Um, I might say, "I'm not going to give you my address." Um, you know, little things that you can do to kind of, uh, you know, just kind of. Um, raise that awareness, you know? Um, and so having a toolbox of what you could do, um, especially if you're a person who experiences uh, certain microaggressions all the time, um, to, you know, just have a toolbox of what, what some uh, comebacks might be um, in those situations. It doesn't always have to be so confrontational. It all, doesn't always have to lead to a really stressful, um, intense argument. Um, but just pointing out some behavior uh, hopefully can um, can start uh, for others to uh, to reflect on some of the things that they do or say. Great tips, because, yeah, the, the first thing you'll think is, well, I'm just going to be confrontational. I'm just going to take them on and tell them, nope, that's not. Yep. And that may not go as far as some of the things you're suggesting, because it's not going to get somebody to think. It's going to get their back up. It's, they're just yep. going to get angry. Uh-huh. And then yep. you get two people who mm-hmm. are – we're angry. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Nadal, right. who is a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, also an author, an activist, a comedian. And there's a, a great point right there. The comedy aspect of our life. There are a lot of parts of comedy that will bring up stereotypes or will make fun of things. Mm-hmm. Or how do you think mm-hmm. comedy adapts if we're going to see real change? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that, um, especially like in the 90s, a lot of comedians were very vocal about like, oh, everything's so politically correct, we can't make jokes any anymore. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of comedians that have a lot of smart ways of talking about certain issues um, without being offensive or hurtful. Um, you know, the whole idea of satire is this idea of, of poking fun at something um, and doing so in a way that makes people think. Um, and, and so I think comedians just need to be smarter. Um, there are a lot of uh, comedians in the past that were just reliant on just saying all racist, homophobic, sexist things. Um, and as you know, like um, those folks don't necessarily exist anymore because they're, they're not getting work. Uh, they're problematic. They're, um, people aren't finding that kind of stuff funny um, anymore. Um, but there are a lot of people that are um, doing very well, um, able to uh, find the humor in a lot of situations um, in ways in which uh, they're still respectful of folks, um, in ways in which they're able to, you know, make points, um, commentary um, about certain things, um, but, you know, without just being like a complete uh, jerk about it, you know? So I think it, 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 uh, it's really easy, at least before, it was really easy just to say something racist or homophobic just to get a laugh. Um, but now it takes a smarter comedian. And in fact, that's like even more of a, of a skill set. Um, and so it's not just something um, that anyone can do anymore. It's something that really takes, you know, that, that uh, quick wit um, and that, that uh, intelligence um, to be able to, to be a very good comedian. Love it. Dr. Nadal, one final thing, and that is that this isn't going to be a quick fix. We know it. 
When do we right. know that things are changing? How do we how do we see that? Yeah, you know, for me, um, I thank you for acknowledging that because I think sometimes people want the quick fix and that's just not going to happen. It's going to take generations. You know, it took generations for us to see any progress regarding racism and sexism. We're barely starting to see any progress regarding um, homophobia and and definitely not even for transphobia. So it does take time. Um, But I think one thing that can be helpful or even, you know, positive and and, uh, help us to, to see that there could be some change is just looking at our children, you know, like I think children. Children, um, when they're raised in more open-minded environments, uh, are able to see things in a lot different way, in much different ways than um, maybe previous generations were able to. Um, and it's not that they don't see race, but they they are able to talk about race. It's not that they don't see gender, but that they're able to talk about um, gender and the ways in which we all need to be um, more uh, mindful of, of oppression and in ways we need to be, uh, we need to advocate for, for equity for all. Um, and so I think children and just the way that they're able to talk about things um, is one way that we can start to see um, some of that change. Um, And then I think eventually, um, you know, I hope that people will start to just um, really validate um, the importance of these things. Um, I think that the less there are these naysayers that say that racism doesn't exist, um, then that becomes like this, uh, you know, a a positive sign, because it means that um, more people are accepting that this is just the reality of our world, or this is just the reality of our society. You know, like, um, you know, I know in Canada, there's also been this more awareness about some of the ways in which indigenous people and especially indigenous children have been treated um, in the country, in the United States, there have been a lot of controversies or, or conversations, I should say, about the controversies regarding, you know, systemic racism and slavery and the, the killing of indigenous people here as well. Like, that just needs to be talked about. Like, we can no longer just sweep this under the rug and pretend that, you know, we come from countries that have, uh, you know, very clean and friendly histories. We don't. We have countries that come from, have a lot of oppressive histories. And I think if we just continue to talk about those things in very normalized ways instead of running away from it um then maybe we can finally start uh to to solve some of the problems um that we now face as a result of those violent histories dr nadal it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for the time today thank you mike appreciate it have a good one you too that is dr kevin nadal dr nadal is an author comedian Professor of Psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice as we talk about microaggressions and what will hopefully be a path to change that we continue to walk down. Right now, we are very happy to welcome Dave Lang from Powerhouse Brewing Company to London Live. Dave, how are things? Good. How are you doing? You know what? Cannot complain. The sun is still shining, and over the weekend, we we took, I don't know, a little step toward feeling a little bit nor, more normal. How did things feel for you guys? I think, I think it was a big step. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a great, great weekend. There were uh, a lot of happy faces uh, that we saw uh, over the weekend. Um, of course, we... Um, we open both patios for Powerhouse Brewing Company and Paradigm Distilling Company. Um, so we have about room for about 280, 100 on Paradigm and 180 on Powerhouse. Uh, spread out, COVID-friendly, uh, all that sort of um, good, fun stuff. Um, we're doing some contract tracing uh, as you enter. Just, I'm not too sure. We were, there's not a lot of direction from the provincial government or the local government as opposed to 
if we're still doing that, but we thought we'd err on the side of caution. But uh, the sun was shining and the beer and the cocktails were flowing and people were very happy to be out uh, socializing. What did you hear from people? Because not everybody did go out and enjoy a patio. What were they saying? Were there were there concerns at all, or was it just good to be back? I think everyone was just happy to be back. Um, we, of course, uh, all the servers have eye protection and masks. All the, the, the COVID protocols from previous uh, reopenings, let's call them, uh, are the same. So everyone's, uh, I think, feeling comfortable. Um, they're just happy to be out enjoying uh, a beer on a patio and enjoying the weather and getting to socialize uh, as much as they can. So if someone was going to look at a patio, what are the rules right now in terms of how many people can be there and where they can sit and who can they be with? Yeah, it's really sort of um, with the change from the color scheme to the step scheme, let's call it. Uh, so right now it's there's four people allowed at a table, um, but with the exception if you have a household of uh, more than four, five, six, whatever the case may be, um, you're allowed to sit at a table. There's no breaking up of uh, family groups that have, uh, you know, more than four people in their house. Um, and the tables are six feet apart. Everything else prior to the shutdown um, stands. As far as that's concerned, you can't get up and move around, and you have to wear your mask when you go into the washroom type thing. Uh, but other than that... Um, we were sort of given, you know, the okay to kind of continue on other than just everyone sort of socially distancing as much as they can. We are talking right now with Dave Lang from Powerhouse Brewing Company. Dave, when you look back over this year, we had so many companies that at points were just saying, we're just trying to hang on. We're just, we've set six months from now or six weeks from now as kind of that goal. and, And we're just trying to get there. What was it like for you? For us, it was great. We, we uh, of course, are a brewery, so we had LCBO and beer store sales, as well as we had a lot of uh, folks supporting uh, local businesses, supporting us as well, and purchasing beer and purchasing food to go. Uh, and that was really anything you kind of that you could do. Uh, you know, a lot of restaurants, the, the industry really suffered tremendously, and everyone was, you know, you have to shift and pivot uh, to what times are predicting or what times are you know, you got to do takeout or you got to do this. And everyone's just sort of, it was a lot of frustration, but everyone was glad. There was a lot of support from local um, people. And uh, I think now we're sort of trying to get into it. But you're right, a lot of people are literally hanging on by their teeth. And there's not a lot of, you know, direction. The, the, the government will open up and give you a couple of days notice. And it really takes a lot to get a restaurant up and running. But it's great. We were so happy to see the people back and see friendly faces we were even more happy to bring staff back uh, and let people start earning some money uh, that haven't been for the last, you know, eight, 10 weeks, which is yeah. a, a large deal as well. And when you look at staff, sometimes people have had to go elsewhere. How difficult was staffing? Did it go okay? Uh, for us, it wasn't too bad. We had a lot of people that were ready to come back, um, being from also selling to licensees and having communicate with them quite a bit there are a few places that are struggling to get people to come back because they've had to move on and find new careers or new avenues of uh, making some money to pay rent and bills and such so some people are having a little bit of tough time to get front of house staff kitchen staff back you know just the little things that sort of make your operation run but we were we were pretty fortunate we got most of our staff back Um, and of course everyone is you know happy to be working that's for sure 
That's just it. Well, Dave, I hope that we can continue on that onward and upward trend and take a few more big steps in the near future. Thanks so much for being here and and sharing this with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, letting me have a, a say there, Mike. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take care, bud. Bye. That's Dave Lang from Powerhouse Brewing Company on how the weekend went. And for the most part, it it went great. Matt McNaughton pointing out there were lineups in London past midnight on Saturday night. Now, let's talk some hockey. I was saying you don't want to be an Islanders fan. (laughs) I got a note from Steve saying, leave us Islanders fans alone. We already take enough abuse, even though we've won eight series since the Leafs last won. Very true. Very Islanders fans will go at Maple Leafs fans and win all the time. I'll get to why why you don't want to be an Islanders fan right now. Why it, it isn't necessarily good for hockey if the Islanders win. Great for Islanders fans. Steve, great. You know, my buddy Greg, great. great. He's an Islanders fan. Very excited about this. But, no, just hear me out. First, I want to touch on Montreal and Vegas. People keep wondering back to the Montreal Canadiens of 1994, saying, could this be a similar run? And the answer is no. No, this is not 1993. That was the last time the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. They won 10 or 11 games in overtime. What did it end up being? It was at least 10. May have ended up at 11 in overtime. I think it was 11. Um, But just remarkable. It wouldn't happen. Patrick Waugh was sensational in net, but the reason this is not 1993, Montreal had pavers and, you know, snow plows and whatever up ahead of them, clearing the path, making it smooth. The Montreal Canadiens should have been blown out by the Pittsburgh Penguins that year. Mario Lemieux and Yarmir Yager were on that team. Have you ever talked to somebody who's played against Mario Lemieux? Here's how hard it was to defend against Mario Lemieux. Picture standing in front of somebody and them being able to take, in this case, the object of interest, the puck, and have it six feet to your left. And then in one fell swoop, it's six feet to your right. You're not defending a human. You're defending 12 feet of ice coming at you. And he had these incredible hands. Montreal and everybody else should have lost to Pittsburgh. The New York Islanders, Steve, Steve, the New York Islanders, beat them. And no one on the Islanders can explain how. They have no idea how they won. But they did. And then Montreal took care of the Islanders in five games because the Islanders had gone on some magical run. And then ask a Leaf fan, yes, Wayne Gretzky, High Stick, Kerry Fraser, L.A. Kings got through to the final, Montreal wins. If this was going to be 1993 again, Montreal would not be playing the Vegas Golden Knights right now. They'd be playing Minnesota. Minnesota was the equivalent of the Islanders, and Minnesota didn't get out of the first round. Vegas beat Minnesota, and then you know Minnesota would have had to go on and knock off Colorado. That would be the equivalent of the New York Islanders. It would have paved the way. Montreal is up against a really difficult team to beat, and one of the reasons is you have players who are still the core of the team on the Vegas Golden Knights, who came together as an expansion team. And anybody who comes together as an expansion team feels like they've joined the Island of Misfit Toys. 
That's who they are. They get together for that very first practice in training camp, that very first skate, or that very first team meeting, and they're looking around, and what do they all have in common? Nobody wanted us. We were not deemed good enough, or for whatever reason, we were not protected by the team that we used to play for. We were exposed in the expansion draft, and we were chosen by this team. And here we are. Now, in this case, they were in Vegas. Beautiful confines, great city, fan support that was off the charts. They went to the final in their first year, but they were still members of the island of misfit toys. And that bonds you together almost as much as winning a championship does. So the core of the team is still that. They've grown up together. They still have incentive to win. And that's going to make them difficult to beat because they are more skilled than Montreal. Not by a lot. They are more physical than Montreal. Not by a lot. They are defensive like Montreal, but just a little bit better. And they have a a little bit more scoring punch than Montreal. And they have that incentive of being a part of the Isle of Misfit Toys. So this is going to be a difficult team to beat. The other thing that Montreal has to watch for, otherwise this game will be 3 nothing Vegas in the first period, is this. The Montreal Canadiens are going into a jam-packed, energy-filled building for the first time in 16 months. These players have been playing the equivalent of training camp scrimmages. And yes, they've counted, and yes, they've been exciting. The players have done a good job, but that energy has been missing. They've had 2,500 fans, and they felt energy. The rush that they are going to get from the crowd will be great. A crowd works for both teams. It really does. The Canadians probably can't wait. But here's the problem. When you're a player and you're about to play in front of a big crowd, you get fired up. Your adrenaline is off the charts. And that is sometimes bad, where you're not doing what you need to be doing. And Montreal likes to play a patient style. When you're fired up, when you're charged up, when that crowd is rocking, when that building is jammed with screaming fans, you want to throw the big hit. You want to make the big play. And if Montreal does too much of that early on, it's 3 nothing Vegas in the first period. So they've got to be careful in that way. Carey Price, he's he's been great. And... There are, we notice it maybe more so now than we used to. I don't know why. Maybe we're paying more attention to it. Maybe maybe players are more willing to do it. But there are players who can play the regular season in a rocking chair. LeBron James can do it. You have to be elite. But they pace themselves. And Carey Price is that. Who Carey Price is in the regular season as the goaltender of the Montreal Canadiens is not who he is in the playoffs. He's way better in the playoffs. He'll have to be really good. Marc-Andre Fleury is going to be pumped up to go up against the team that represents his home province. He's going to be pumped up to play in Montreal in front of 2,500 people. He's going to be pumped up to play. He's in the other net. But Carey Price is going to have to be a big difference in this series. He can be, but it'll be interesting to see just how many games he can steal and how many games Montreal has to earn. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.